just did was not stirring up emotions for emotion's sake. It's clearing our head and getting ourselves back in the real game of life. And the real game of life are not your bills. They're not your responsibilities. They're not the grades you're trying to get. They're not the, the accolades at work to get you a promotion that you need to feel you need to have. Getting in the game is getting in to the kingdom's mindset. The kingdom is at hand, Jesus said. Repent and believe in the good news. The kingdom meaning his reign. And his reign is eternal. It always has been, it is, and it will always be. He created us to worship him. To acknowledge the glory in him. We were created to be beings of worship. Beings who would love the creator. But we get so distracted, don't we? How many have been distracted this week? I know. It's one of those weeks where I'm like, oh, those are some big decisions I might have to make. Or I might have to really get my act together. Jesus says first things first. And that's what we're going to look at today. First things first. We started last week a series called On the Brink. And I firmly believe that some of our lives are on the brink. And that's why I call it On the Brink. Because some of us are on the brink of a trajectory. Maybe not to destruction and difficulty and challenge. Maybe we're on a brink of pursuing a secular life that will have no ultimate meaning in the end. And you're being told that you need to pursue that course. And so you're on the brink of pursuing that course. But there's another direction on this brink. And that's the direction of pursuing the course of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It's not that there's not responsibilities and work and opportunity that's before you and you can be glorifying God and all that. I understand that. But in your heart, there's a disposition. You're either on the brink of all these woes and, for, uh, and problems and concerns and going this direction of human existence, mere human existence, or you're on the brink <laughs> of moving your way into being able to throw your arms around Jesus Christ someday face to face. And he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. I've loved you from the beginning. Welcome into the place that I've prepared for you. Is your life on the brink? Jesus appeared to the Apostle John as we started last week in the book of Revelation in a vision. It wasn't really a vision necessarily of like, oh, make-believe or a dream. It says, uh, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. And what that means in Revelation 1 was uh, when John was on the island of Patmos, 80-some years old, because he got kicked to this prison island because of his faith in Christ, he was worshiping, just like you were worshiping. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. And so it wasn't like it was a dream necessarily or some like a, a weird vision necessarily. He really was in the presence of God. And on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me the sound like a loud trumpet. And he turned, right? We looked at that. And when he turned, he saw one, what? Walking among Seven golden lampstands. Now, think about that. This someone was Jesus, one like the Son of Man. And lampstands stood for the churches. And Jesus was behind him just walking around. Walking around like he would walk around today. And as he was walking around, it wasn't just the meek, lowly Jesus that is recorded in, in, in the Gospels. This Jesus was in a glorified state, and in this glorified state were 
attributes of who he was as an individual that just sort of spoke out from how John saw him. And so when he saw him, he saw that he was radiant and he was clothed in a robe reaching to his feet and around his chest was a golden sash and his head and his hair were white like wool, white as snow and and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. Remember how we depicted it last week? It's depicted there in scripture. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword speaking truth. And his face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. And what happened when the Apostle John on the island of Patmos in the book of Revelation saw this visible, glorified presence of Jesus? What happened to him? He fell at his feet as though dead. Have you ever been there? Where you felt yourself in the presence of God in such a rich way that you, you just have to sort of get prostrate. You know, you're... you're I, I, I don't know, you might think you can't get down now because you got rickety old knees or something like that, but you get a new body in heaven, you're going to be prostrate. You're going to be, you're going to be glorifying God, right? And he laid his right hand on him and he said, what? Do not be afraid. I am the living one. I was dead. And I am alive forevermore. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. That's the picture. And there were probably, as I mentioned, the cherubim and the seraphim, the holy, holy, holy is being shouted out from one direction to another. That visual of the kingdom of God, of what we just sang about from Revelation. If you read on into Revelation or listen like I exhorted us to last week, you will see the four living creatures and the angels and those around the throne declaring forth, holy, holy, you're, you're worthy to take the book. You're, you're worthy to break the seals. Some incredible stuff. Wow. I could get caught up in all that and just park right there. <laughs> but that's not what happened. I mean, John just didn't get a park right there and he didn't get, a, get ushered on. In fact, he ended up living for a period of time after that and continuing to pastor back actually in Ephesus and Jesus did something. He started walking around these lampstands, these churches. He started walking around the churches with his blazing eyes of fire, right? And he says, I got a word for all of you. I don't know if he had a twang to himself like that or something. I got a word for you. (laughs) Or maybe it was more black style. We we had a great night last night with a comedy uh, night and... uh, Six foot of slim really got us going on a few of the stylistic things of different cultured kind of churches. I don't know how he'd say it, but he would look at you and he'd say, I have a word for you, awakening church. Is your name descriptive of your life? Or name? We'll call ourselves the Awakening Church. Are you awake? I mean, I ask these kinds of things. Do you ask these kinds of things? Because Jesus is real through his spirit. Jesus, what would you say to me? It's almost like listening for a prophetic word that God would speak to you. And you just need to slow down and listen. So if I say, God, Jesus was walking around our church physically this morning. What would he say? He'd say, you got a name? Is a descriptive of your life as a church? Are you awake? And we might have to say, well, I don't know if we're awake or not. We try. We really do try. We all got up today. We got people serving children's ministries, student ministries. The band was here. We we got ourselves put together. We're looking pretty decent. I don't think the mirror broke before I came. And I'm good. And I said hi to a few people. I shook a few hands. I'm glad we're not doing that. They're turn and greet thing today because that always messes me up sometimes. But, you know, I'm trying to be awake. And, you know, 
I'm the same as you sometimes. Just come to church on a duty, responsibility, my job. I go, wait a second, that's not right. This is a beautiful opportunity we have to meet together and to worship the Lord. Yeah, I am the pastor, but I can just go through the motions too, friends. I can't. Am I awake? Am I fully alive in Christ? When I sing a song about His holiness, do I draw near to His presence? You see, Jesus would say this to us walking around. It's like the awakening. If you're not fully awake, then why don't you get awake? Why don't... Either change your conduct or change your name. You might say that. You might say that. And you call yourself a Christian if you're a follower of Christ today? Good, good. What's your life look like? I'm not talking about all the do's and don'ts and measuring up and am I in or not, all that work, religious jargon and and religiosity. A Christian is a Christ follower, one who loves Jesus and as one who loves Jesus, you should be building that relationship and loving Him more and knowing Him more and serving Him more. If your name is Christian today, then what would Jesus say to you? Would He say either change your conduct or change your name? Oh, the world's responsibilities, the do's and don'ts list, what's happening this afternoon, even this week, what's, you know, all those things. And we have to be responsible. God's gifted this world to be responsible in and to glorify Him. But somewhere in the inner crevices of our spirit and our heart, our love for Jesus can grow cold. And so Jesus doesn't usher John into this beautiful, glorified experience right away. He he tells him, I want you to write down what you see and send this word to seven churches. And these seven churches need to listen to my word. And every one of them end with the statement, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And this is not a study this morning on antiquity. This is a wake-up call for us at the Awakening Church. Because Jesus, through his spirit, walks around churches today. Not just this church, every church in this valley, across this nation, around the world. Jesus loves his church. The church is not the building. The church is the people, the body of Christ that love him, want to be drawn close to him. And he speaks to them. And he speaks to them as he watches them. And so he speaks to seven churches. In the first part of Revelation, who are on the brink. They're on the brink of having their lampstand, their light in the world extinguished. Or they're on the other side of the cliff, the brink of being able to bring glory to God and serve His purposes on into history. This is the first century. Okay, this is 40, 50 Years after Christ walked physically on the earth, what's happening with the people who said they were followers of him, right? And so he has a word for them. And through that word for them, he's got a word for us today in this community of followers and seekers. These are the seven churches. The seven churches he lists are Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Sort of on a circular route there. We're going to look at each of those seven in this series. It's going to be scattered over the course of the summer at different moments in time today. We look at Ephesus, and I tell you what, this has been one of, if you can't tell already, one of the most exciting words uh, of Jesus to his church that I've experienced over the course of my life. It's a good word, but it's a hard word. So I want us to turn there. It says this in Revelation 2, 1 through 7. We will go through this. To the angel of the church at Ephesus write. Any of you know where Ephesus is? Let me see your hands. Any of you know where Turkey is? All right. Any of you ever been to Turkey? Istanbul? All right. Istanbul is the big place right now. It's around the corner. You come down the Aegean Sea and you would find Ephesus. You would find Ephesus in ruins. 
Ephesus no longer exists as an alive town. Now, there's a lot of live bodies there, but they're all visiting it because of the ruins and the history. You see, Ephesus was one of the big cities, metropolitan cities of the day. You take Rome, you take Antioch, you take Alexandria, and you take Ephesus. If you were to go back in the first century, this place was bustling probably 200, 250,000 people. It was in the middle of the trade routes, all right? In the middle of the trade routes, they had people from all different kinds of background, all kinds of different commerce going on. This is a model depiction of Ephesus. If you had been alive in that day, actually this is a small part of it. This is the downtown area. Of course, the housing would be scattered around. The reason I throw this up to you is because when you see ruins a lot of times, you don't think in terms of um, how incredible the city would have been during that day. You just see stones and boulders and columns and carvings, right? <coughs> this is the road that um, went down from the first part when you, um, well, there's different ways, of course, to go in because if I could have you look way, I think there's a little light on here. Oh, that little light doesn't work once it goes on a screen. How about that? I learned something today. If you look way out in the distance, you see some plains. Those plains used to be ocean, the sea. But because of the Caster River, it filled in over the course of time. It's one of the reasons they say that it's no longer a city today. They tried to dredge it out over a period of time, but they couldn't keep it, and it closed off. So the city closed off in many ways. If you see the Colosseum there, that Colosseum seated 25,000 people. To the left of the Colosseum is, in this area here, is the commercial place, commerce, the Agora, the commercial Agora, and in that was all kinds of commerce everywhere. Next to this was a large library. Now, I want you to see the library. You see that down at the end? Mm -hmm. That's the library. Down the road. And I was there. I know. Some of you are thinking that's Photoshop. I was blessed in 2004 on a six-month sabbatical, and I was granted some monies from the Lilly Pharmaceutical Company because they give grants to pastors to take sabbaticals. And my wife and I had the most beautiful vacation and spiritual experience we ever had and probably ever will. We cruised the Mediterranean Sea with the journeys of the Apostle Paul. Now, in 2004, I looked a little bit more youthful there. I was on one of those tour things, and I just so much wanted to say, just, just park the bus. Don't worry about it. Let's just spend a couple days here. But it was a rushed journey through. They had a huge library, manuscripts from all over the place, the commercial agorist, the arch to the right. That's what's left today. Uh, the agora, I mean, this is, you, you talk about the super malls. This was a super mall. It's not all shown there. It was huge as the model depicted. All gone. Amphitheaters there. This is a picture of me sitting and watching something in that amphitheater, looking down the harbor road, going to the harbor that doesn't exist there anymore. The ruins. These particular ruins, the Apostle Paul was almost dragged into this amphitheater and killed. But for the sake of somebody that pulled him out and said, no, listen, we got courts and laws for that. He was causing a ruckus. You know why he's causing a ruckus? <laughs> Look at it briefly. Because people were coming to know Jesus. And it was changing all their culture. Part of their culture was the Temple of Artemis. What's called one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Artemis was the goddess of fertility and cultivation and other things. And life is represented by depicting multiple bosoms. Very fertile, very bountiful. 
Okay? And the reason Paul got in trouble is so many people were changing following the goddess Artemis, or Diana in Roman terminology, that uh, their little statues they bought, and everybody's buying statues, the silversmiths, their whole industry got turned upside down. All right? And they, and they didn't need any politicians telling them that the coal business was going under, right? <laughs> they had their a silversmith business going under because people were turning their hearts to Jesus. The Temple of Artemis is about a football and a half field long, football field wide, 127 incredible columns. I'm looking forward to seeing the Temple of Artemis <laughs> in Ephesus. How about it? Right? We're getting excited. There's the sign. Artemis, temple this direction. Seems to be an awful lot of just common agricultural stuff going on. That's the temple of Artemis. Gone. Just gone. It was actually uh, savaged and destroyed and, and all of its pillars hauled away. In the third century, that pillar that's standing there is just some pieces some people put back together. And I'm like, wow, I guess that's rather disappointing and so goes the bus. Now, you know, I want you to think about that for just a second because we think we're living in a very important day, and we are in many ways. But listen, your day is no different than anybody else's day. Cultures come and cultures go. Temples and edifices come and go. They build big football stadiums. They tear them down. They build other stadiums. Life moves on. Here's one of the seven ancient wonders. Gone. Just gone. And it wasn't just the worship of Artemis there. It was the central part for banking. People would come there and get loans because, you know, the money that was given, they'd loan it back out. All kinds of incredible things. This was a huge city, and that, that's, that's it. It's gone. It's done. Actually, those columns were taken to help build the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul. Anybody been there? We're going to have to take a trip, friends. Yeah. Mike, we're going to have to take a trip. Road trip. Road trip. I had the opportunity to be in there. They took it there. It was a Christian place. Byzantine period. Ottoman Empire took over. It became a mosque. Behind a lot of the mosque things, the Islamic inscriptions, you can see the Christian stuff behind it because they painted over it. It's, It's neither a church or a mosque today. It's a museum. Those are some of the columns, though, they say, that came from Artemis' temple. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. What's he going to say to them, these Christians? Now remember how the church there started. The church just didn't appear there. It was cultivated there. Paul made journeys there. Priscilla and Aquila in Scripture were there. Timothy was the pastor in Ephesus for a good period of time. And John in his later years, he was there as pastor as well. In fact, remember John was told by Jesus on the cross, take care of my mom. It's believed also that possibly Jesus' mother was in Ephesus and that that's where Jesus' mother died. So Ephesus is a pretty big deal. It's the biggest church of all the seven that are looked at. In fact, when you read the letter to the church at Ephesus called in the epistle that Paul wrote to the Ephesians, it was seen as a circular letter probably here. Read it in Ephesus and then take it around to the other churches. These churches may be 40, 50 miles apart. Now think about that. We start here in the Temecula Valley. You go up to Riverside. Riverside maybe to Pasadena. Pasadena over to, I don't know, maybe one of the beaches. One of the beaches down to San Diego, whatever. San Diego back up to Escondido. I don't want, it was a circular kind of area. And these were the churches that were being addressed. But Jesus was walking around and he's addressing each and every one. How bold is that? How bold is that? And then what does it say? I know your deeds. I'm going to stop right there. The one with blazing eyes. He walks around the churches, the awakening. He says, I know your deeds. He walks into your house and he says, I know your deeds. Now, what happens to you when you hear that statement? The first thing that happens to me with this statement is, uh-oh. <laughs> then it, uh-oh. 
But he looks at this church in Ephesus not in a disparaging way. He admires them because their deeds are solid. Their deeds are true. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Oh, I'll take that accommodation. I'll take that there uh, uh, job report. They were at it. And they were not compromising. There were three things they were really sort of doing. They were serving, they were discerning, and they were persevering. Are you serving? Are you discerning? Are you persevering? Are we, at the awakening, are we serving, discerning, and persevering? They were serving. They, they served the people. They loved the people. You've got to remember, in this culture of, of Ephesus, you had this, the temple goddess of, of Artemis. I mean, there were other temples, 14 some other temples, all kinds of gods that were, that were worshipped there. And there was sort of this cultic kind of thing that was underground. I didn't show you. Right beside uh, the agora, the commercial agora, was, was the brothel. The brothel was right across from the library. How about that? Let's put it right there in the center of town. There was all kinds of immorality going on. Of course, it's a temple of Artemis is around here. Fertility goddess, right? So let's participate. I mean, that's what they're thinking of. And they were serving in this kind of church, and they were holding of their own. They were discerning of those who... Um, were corrupt in their practices, but also in their theology. You know, I had, you had the Temple of Artemis, and so you had that issue. But you, more importantly, probably many times, is, was the worship of the emperor. You see, the Roman Empire at that time, the only way they could keep it all connected together, strewn out, they didn't have social media. They couldn't do the texting thing, right? They couldn't do the television thing. So they put stuff on the coins, they made decrees, and everybody was to worship the emperor, whoever the emperor was at that time. Caesar, Nero, Domitian. When you walked into the commercial Agora and you wanted to be in this super mall, there was a burning incense bowl, and you were supposed to take new incense and drop it in the burning incense and declare your worship of the Lord. The Lord, the Emperor. But they weren't doing it, these Christians. And that kept them out of an awful lot of things. And so Jesus, he looks at the church, he has great admiration for their deeds, their hard work, their perseverance in the midst of this culture. There not only was the worship of Artemis, there was not only the worship of of the Emperor and declaring him the Lord, the God. There was also strong, strong demonic activity going on in Ephesus. You had oracles. Priests, satanic priests, if you will, that would uh, be able to do enchantments and other kinds of things. And people would pay. Why do you think, and Mike did a nice job in men's breakfast yesterday morning. Thanks, men, for coming. We had a large group here. Speaking out of Ephesians, that our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, evil forces, and high places. Said to take on the full armor of God, to, to attack the devil's schemes. This was written to the people in Ephesus. They knew about that stuff. You had orgies going on, all the sexual morality happened. You had the, the, the temple of Artemis and, and that kind of worship. And I can't tell you, I was digging back into some stuff, just nasty stuff this week that would happen because of the Artemis thing at certain rituals during the year. You had this worship of the emperor, put your incense in as you went into the big mall area. And then you had the oracles going around and people paying monies to have these enchantments and these spells and these magician stuff going on. And there was an evil underbelly to all of it. This was the culture that was in Ephesus and these Christians were holding true to their faith. They were serving, they were discerning and they were persevering. Don't you ever think the church at Ephesus was a bunch of wimpy folks that weren't doing church right. They were. And they were trying to serve God right. But 
in that kind of culture, just as in every culture, just like our culture, which has its very strong pitfalls in all kinds of directions as well, right? They lock themselves into a routine, a routine. So they would show up and they would go through their practices and they would find themselves sort of, I don't know, in the doldrums. Yet I hold this against you. Only one thing Jesus says to this church at Ephesus. You have forsaken your first love. You've lost your first love. And so the one who has the authority to walk amongst the lampstands, the one who has the searching flashlight, he walks these rows and he looks up and down our aisles, beginning with my own heart. And he says, I admire what you're doing. I admire how faithfully you're serving. You know, you just don't show up at church. You actually sign up to help with kids. And, and I, I, I see your heart afterwards and mixing and mingling and trying to, you know, pray for some people maybe. I, I see all that. You're serving and you're discerning. I see you become indignant when there's error in truth, whether in culture and, and, and society at large or whether within the church. And I see you persevering. Those Christians in Ephesus, they persevered through a lot of suffering. Why do you think John was on the island of Patmos rather than being a pastor back at Ephesus? He was booted there by the emperor. So you can't do that here. Suffering. Some of you are enduring a lot of suffering, even suffering because you proclaim the name of Christ. But Jesus, searchlight, he said, I got, I got something. He goes from this commendation to a criticism. And his criticism is you've lost your first love. What is your first love? There's no other place to go for this except to the great commandment. Mark 12, 31. Let's say it out loud together. Ready? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no great greater than these. That first love is embedded in that great commandment. Foremostly, your love of God, your love of Jesus. Where's your love for Jesus at today? Your first love. Remember your first love? Oh, yeah, I do. There were several. It didn't go anywhere with any of them. But I had some first love. But then the first person I dated for a long period of time, and then eventually when I met Melissa, the, the, the love that you have, and yeah, you may call it infatuation, but the love, everything in life gets blocked out, doesn't it? And you're pretty myopic. I'm right there. How can I spend more time with them? How can I get around them? All right? How can I show them how much I love them? How much more love can I give to them? You ever been around people newly in love? It's disgusting. (laughs) Come on, come on, man. There's more things to do. Let's go, right? (laughs) Myopic, man. Love. And what happens to your love? Well, your love can wane or your love can grow. Because love is not a feeling, is it? Love is an action. It's a discipline towards somebody. And you cultivate that love. And so this first love isn't Jesus saying, remember back to when you just discovered me? <laughs> remember when you like, I don't know, you heard that I died on the cross for you and I rose from the grave and I want to see you again. And all that. Remember that? And, and you made the decision. And your sins are forgiven. Or you can look back to that and say, yeah, I remember that. But he's not saying go back to that, you know, that new fun. He says, no, the true love, the sincerity, the single mindedness, the focus that you had on me, because a new love matures into a true love and a deeper love. And we expect that to happen in a marriage or in a relationship of a friend that we're encouraging. And we need to return to the first love of pursuing the health and maturation and the beauty of the relationship for relationship itself. 
So many people turn to Jesus for what Jesus can give them and do for them. But they've never turned to Jesus himself. And if you're in that boat, I warn you, you will discard your faith somewhere at some point. Because you'll be disappointed. But if you came to Jesus because of the person of Jesus, the glory of Jesus, and as we worship Jesus as holiness, and you embrace him, if you're falling in love with Jesus over and over again, week out, month in, month out, you name it, then you are on the right path because you were born not to do things for God, but to love God. And so it has to be the relationship that we pursue. And so Jesus says, hey, got a problem here some Christmas. You're all doing great. You've lost your first love. And you've got to go back and recalibrate. How did I get to where I'm at? What's going on? So he moves from this commendation to a criticism to a challenge. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, let me take that last part here first. The Nicolaitans were people that were from a a Gnostic or Greek background, and they were really corrupting things. And basically, the attitude was that uh, the body really means nothing. It's just the soul. The soul is what's important. So it doesn't matter then what you do in or to the body. It's really the soul that really matters on the spiritual front. Okay? And so the Nicolaitans, most likely, they were these individuals who were corrupting the faith. They were leading people astray, and they were involved in eating food sacrificed to idols. They were involved. They were all down there at the brothel. You know, that was sort of commonplace kind of thing, and involved in sexual morality. Because it didn't matter what happened to the body. It was the spirit. Now, as I thought about that this week, we don't have these people called the Nicolaitans around. And these individuals come back in another letter uh, later on here in our series. But we do have some of the same mindset, don't we? Doesn't matter what you do to your body. Friends, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, scriptures teach. And it does matter what you do to your body. It does. Whether it has to do with being sexually pure and moral, whether it has to do with what we consume and what we put into our body, whether it has to do with where we take our bodies to, okay? Don't fall into the practices of the Nicolaitans. Because if we were to anchor there on that criticism a little bit, he was criticizing the Nicolaitans here, you know, and, and he hated it. I'm like, wait a second. Jesus, can Jesus hate something? Here's him all of his glory. And he says, I hate that. So when you see something that you hate, that you think is morally wrong, it's okay, you're being like Jesus. Just make sure that your hatred is justified biblically and that your hatred does not lead to other emotions and actions that are not of Jesus. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't matter how you've fallen, whether in the body or out of the body. I don't care not in one sense. Jesus says, because he died for all people. And so that hatred is an indignation. It's a justice kind of thing. This is not right. So you should have that in life. And it's a flipping comment here. It's not flipping, a, a varying comment. You know, you have this in favor. You hate the practice of Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So he's telling them again, what? They're serving, they're discerning, and they're persevering. Good, 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 good. But you've lost your first love. This is what you need to do. You need to remember, repent, and return. Remember the height from which you have fallen. I was watching the balloons in our valley driving to work today. I guess they were having some trouble getting all right or something. Somebody was complaining I heard. I've never been up one of those balloons. If you want to take me up one of those balloons, let me know. <laughs> you got one in your backyard. I got a place to launch it from. House I rents on some acreage. And... Uh, I was thinking, you know, you go up in those hot air balloons, and what happens if a balloon starts to sink? The fire is not as strong. 
Remember the height from which you would fall in. Is there something about the passion and the fire you have for Jesus? And it's not a mere emotion that you strum up. It's, it's that single-mindedness, that myopicness. Remember the height from which... Repent, it says. Repent means to turn, change your actions from doing those things and do the things you did at first. Return. Return. What were some of the things you did at first? Remember your first love, you you wake up, you had devotions, you really loved to study the Word of God, you had questions, you searched through those. When you know you came to church on Sunday morning, you, you came with a focus of, I'm going to come into worship, I'm not just coming to avoid some people or to get out of here to go to lunch, you know. I really have come to worship, and, and you're focused on worship, and even if the music or some other things aren't going quite right, you know in your spirit that Jesus is here to meet with you and with others. And you find your hand being raised a little bit. You find your heart centered on God's word. You, you linger afterwards. You mix and mingle. And you just love to hear about what God's doing. And maybe you can't catch a chance prayer with someone. You head out. You head into Monday. And Monday your eyes and ears are all open for God to show you and to speak to you. Opportunities to serve Him. Remember that. That may sound like a bunch of actions, but those actions reflect a single-minded focus. Remember when you would just have a popcorn prayer to Jesus because you knew that he was right there with you? Remember. Remember the height from which you've fallen. And, and repent. You've got to repent. Say, God, help me. If you guys remember a few weeks ago, I felt myself on my knees beside my bed saying, Oh, God, this is not good. This is not Part of that, friends, what's this this is not good, the condition of my heart, if it's grown cold. And so there was repentance, just in a simple phrase, God, this is not good, help me. And then do the things you did at first. Some of those same things, some of that same focus, time away with the Lord. Do these things. You know, we can get caught up in so much serving and activity as Christians. And, and all of that helps us many ways grow closer to God. And we want to be God's servants in our world. But how many of you, uh, say spouses, how many of you ever have done an, an act of kindness to your spouse? I, I say for, and, I, and I don't do this too often, so don't hold me to it. But every now and then, um, unprompted, I will clean the kitchen. Oh, my wife's away. Right. And when she returns, she may say something like, oh, honey, thank you so much for cleaning up the kitchen. Why did you do this? Now, at that moment, what am I going to say? I'm not probably going to say, well, honey, I'm just trying to uphold the institution of marriage and what it's supposed to be about. <laughs> no. I'm going to say, honey, because I love you. And I know that this act of service is a gift to you. You see the subtle difference? Are you serving God? Are you discerning theological truth? Are you persevering through whatever sufferings because you're just trying to uphold the institution of church? Or the institution of being a Christian? Or are you doing it because there's a genuine love for Jesus? Here's the problem, and I'm going to be bold in saying this, and I, I don't know, Mike said it yesterday. If I offend you, I'm sorry in one sense, but this is who I am. <laughs> some of you can't do this. You know, some of you can't do it because you've, you've never committed your life to Christ. And you can always do that. Repent and turn to Him. He wants, he wants you to have forgiveness and life eternal and a full life today, right? But some of you can't do it who have already done that because when you turn to Jesus, it wasn't about a love relationship. It was about some fire insurance, maybe to escape hell or to be in heaven or maybe you're just feeling guilty or maybe it's because some friends were doing it. But when you came to Jesus, it wasn't love. So how can I return to my first love if I've never been in love with Jesus? Is that you? 
Because I want to encourage you, there is an incredible world of opportunity for you if you just start to move towards Jesus in a love relationship and not in a works righteousness kind of relationship. You hear me? And what happens in our life is we move towards the works issues. Am I up? Am I down? Am I doing good? How's everybody else measuring me? Where did that come from? That's institutional. That's not why Jesus came. He didn't come to establish an institution. He came to restore a relationship, a relationship that was broken in the Garden of Eden through sin. And he sent his son to deal with the sin issue, to pull you back, to walk in the garden as he did with Adam and Eve in fellowship with his created beings. Jesus is about restoring and renewing. And it's a love relationship. Now that may wig out a little bit of us who are men in here, right? Because we don't comprehend love relationships sometimes in the intimacy factor. But friends, that's what Jesus is saying to this church. And I believe he says to us as a church, Awakening, you want to be fully alive in Christ? Then don't just be about holding church and doing services, having classes, youth group, even doing service projects to the community, homeless, you name it. Don't get caught up in that being the central heart. The central heart of it, awakening, is a love relationship with me. And this church will never, ever go wrong if there's a passionate love for Jesus. You hear me? And I've been praying, and I invite you to pray for us as a body, that we would be a church that goes back to our first love. And we love Jesus. Hudson Taylor, great missionary. Hudson Taylor said the most important thing for a missionary going overseas is not a love for lost people. It's a love for Jesus. Because if you have a love for Jesus, you will have a love for lost people. Lord, break my heart for people I used to pray. But the prayer in front of that is, Lord, break my heart for you. And he's been faithful to that through the years. And he's calling me back to it time and time again. And I think he needs to call us back to it as well. If you do not repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place. Church in Ephesus doesn't exist anymore. Part of the reason, maybe, because they didn't return to their love. What about us as a church? What about other churches? Every church has life cycles. Oh, the glory days. I remember the glory. What do you mean glory days? They were glory days, but every day can be a glory day. Renewing the cycle in the heart for love. And then he closes, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Here's the tree of life reappearing. We're going to take a look at each of these. Every one of the seven churches has a beautiful commendation and hope and reward at the end. How many of you know this man? Keith Green. Keith Green was a prominent Christian artist, wrote his own lyrics, powerful lyrics, very intimate, challenging lyrics to individuals as well to the church. He was killed, um, how many years ago? Late 70s, early 80s, in a private plane crash. I want you to listen to a song of Keith Green's, and then the worship team's going to come back up, and I'm going to give you the opportunity to renew your first love. We love him because he first loved us. You know who said that? The Apostle John in 1 John. We love because he first loved us. If we're going to work our way back to that first love or gain that first love for the first time, then we have to behold his beautiful love for us. But before before we can return, what does it say we have to do? We have to repent. And before we can repent, we have to remember. So I want you to remember. I want you to acknowledge if maybe you're in not a good place, that you would repent. And then I want you to return. And so we're going to sort of close it out in this measure a little bit. I don't want you to be distracted. I want you to listen to this song. I re-listen to it. It's a short, simple song. But it pulls me in to reflect on my own heart. Keith Green.
My eyes are dry My faith is old My heart is hard My prayers are cold And I know how I ought to be Alive to you And dead to me Wash me anew in the wine of your love. My eyes are dry, my faith is old, my heart is hard, my prayers are cold, and I. Identify with that. An old heart like mine. Look it up. Download the albums. Find a place where you can meet with Jesus to remember to repent and actively return. Will you bow your head as I pray? I want to pray for you if maybe you found yourself being touched by Jesus this morning. You need to know His love afresh because your love has grown cold. If that is true of your life, I'm going to invite you just to stand where you're at and say, I need to remember, repent, and return. You're not standing before me, it's before Jesus. Have you lost your first love? Acknowledge it before him today as I close in prayer. Others across the body, stand where you're at.